If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read this whole chapter to us this morning. Uh, if you're just joining us or if you've forgotten, uh, we start a new series this year where we're going to look at the book of Revelation together. And the first four weeks of this year are an introduction to the book of Revelation. So as we go through each of these introductory sermons each week, we're kind of building uh, uh, out a framework by which we can understand the book of Revelation. And so what we're trying to do is look at other parts of the scripture that lay down themes that we see reach their fullest expression in the book of Revelation. So this is week three by way of introduction. And this morning we're going to be thinking about love. And so I wanted to read this chapter to you. It's probably a chapter you've heard many times before. Um, but the point of the sermon this morning is this, uh, love conquers. Two words, love conquers. So if you want to understand 1 Corinthians 13, you can remember those two words. And throughout the sermon, I'll try to take, those, take that idea of love conquering and work that into our third um, theme for introducing Revelation uh, to you. So before I read, one more thing. Remember the quote that we've been thinking about together? Remember this from Augustine, a guy that lived uh, around the year 400. He had a statement about eternity, summarizing eternity. It's the quote that I'd love for you to, especially if you're a note taker, take it down, think about it, wrestle with it, see how it summarizes all of what Revelation and eternity is talking about. So here's the quote. Maybe you remember it over the weeks and months. I hope that we'll get it down by the end of the year. So here's his thought about eternity. All will be amen and hallelujah. We shall rest and we shall see. We shall see and we shall know. We shall know and we shall love. We shall love and we shall praise. Behold our end, which is no end. That's where, our headed, that's where we are headed, beloved. That's where we're headed. 1 Corinthians 13, listen to this. This is God's word to you and to me, to us. We can bank our entire life on it. Listen to this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand your word afresh. We ask this every week, Lord, because we need it. We ask this every week because we don't even realize how much resistance there remains within our heart. Resistance to your gospel, resistance to your truth, resistance to Jesus. And we also, Lord, forget over and over how deep your love is for us. The love that changes us, the love that frees us, the love that brings us into your presence, the love that will last forever. So Holy Spirit, act on us. Help us to know ourselves more clearly. Help us to see Christ as more irresistible, that we might, that we might not be able, that we might not be able to resist Jesus, that we might want him more and more. For your glory, Amen. Remember the idea we're thinking about this morning is love conquers. I had a really hard time coming up with an outline this week. So I'll tell you what I know. As I read through this passage and say this passage, I know this. This chapter is supposed to challenge us. It is supposed to crush us. And it is supposed to change us. But here's the thing. I don't know exactly how this passage is going to challenge you. Because all of you are different. All of us are different. I don't know exactly how this passage is going to crush you because we're all different. I do know specifically how this passage is supposed to change every single one of us. I know that. So here's what we're going to do. Love conquers. Point number one, we're going to think about being challenged and crushed. And I have no idea where or when that's going to happen. And then secondly, we're going to think about change. Make sense? You got me? So the first point we're going to think about is challenge and crush, being challenged and being crushed. So let's jump in. If we're going to understand this passage, if we're going to think about being challenged and think about how God might be crushing us in some ways, we really need to get our bearings. So let's get our bearings. Let's think about this place where Paul writes this letter, this place called Corinth. And maybe you've heard of Corinth before, maybe you never have. So let's just get our bearings and make sure we understand what's going on with the original audience. That way we can then move to application to our own times. But we need to understand how it was originally written and to whom and why. So Corinth, place in Greece. In the ancient world, Corinth was a place of... Um, um, transportation such that if you wanted to go north or south, you had to go through Corinth. Everyone was coming through there all the time, going from one side of Greece to the other, going east, going west. They, everyone had to go through Corinth. It was a port town. And it was the place in which people wanted to live in order to make money. It was an incredibly wealthy city. It was a place where you went when you were the kind of person that really wanted to make a difference in the world. It was a place you wanted to go when you really wanted to make it, meaning make money, make a name for yourself, and help change things. It was a place that encouraged hard work. It was a place that you had to be really intelligent to make it there. 
It was also a place of unbridled sexual activity. Everywhere, in all kinds of ways. There was a temple in Corinth to Aphrodite, and one account says that there were a thousand prostitutes that worked at that temple, and every evening they would venture into the city of Corinth. Sexual promiscuity was everywhere. Now remember, God has created sex, God has gifted sex to human beings, and God has said that sex should be between one man and one woman within the confines of marriage. That is where sexuality is to be. Sexual things are meant to be enjoyed and explored. And in Corinth, it was everything but that. So if you go back through and read the, 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 the letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, you will find that there were people there who were doing everything but what God says will contribute to human flourishing. So there were people that were having premarital sex. There were people who were involved in sexual relations before they had committed to one another. There was homosexuality going on. There was even in the church, there was someone who decided to have sexual relations with what more than likely is their mother-in-law. I mean, this was a sexually explicit place. Everywhere, everything goes. And as bad as you might think our country is, it's not even close to what Corinth was like. Not even close. They were way ahead of where we are, even in our country. So just in case you might think we've, you know, like gone off the deep end sexually, in some ways we have, many ways we have, but I want you to know Corinth is beyond where we are. Well, Corinth was also a place in which you know what? I'll come back to that. So that's the place, Corinth. The author, the human author of this book, God used this guy named the Apostle Paul. So if we're going to get our bearings, we need to remember who the Apostle Paul is. And in particular, I want to tell you a little bit about the last few months of his life before he made it to Corinth. So just let me tell you about the Apostle Paul, what's happened in the last, let's say, you know, several months of his life. Um, he planted a church in Philippi. And he had, he had almost, he, he almost died because people beat him. So he had to leave Philippi. So he traveled to um, ultimately a couple little towns and he got to Athens. And it was there that he was uh, declaring the gospel and waiting for other people to meet him in Athens. And it was there that he was publicly made fun of for a, you know, decent amount of time. Like publicly humiliated, publicly made fun of. So he left Athens and then God ends up moving in his life to where he ends up in Corinth. So he goes from Athens where he was made fun of and before that where he was beaten and then he ends up in a place like Corinth. And if you read chapters 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 of Acts, you'll find all this stuff out. And it's there in Acts chapter 18 that God says this to the Apostle Paul. Remember, God knows everything that's going on with Paul, right? I mean, he knows everything that's going on with you and me, right? God says to the Apostle Paul, Paul, don't worry about being in Corinth. Stay there. I'm with you. Keep proclaiming my message because there are a lot of people in Corinth that belong to me. Now imagine 
Imagine if you were sent by God to proclaim good news and you had been beaten and made fun of and then you landed in a place that was the most sexually promiscuous and the place that everybody wanted to go in order to make money and make it, where you wanted to go if you wanted to change the world and that's where the Apostle Paul ends up. You think he might be a little bit discouraged or nervous about what may happen there? Stay there, Paul. I'm with you. Keep saying the message. I've got people here who belong to me. Well, that brings us to the church. If we're going to get our berries, we've got to understand a little bit more about the church. If we understand the place and we understand what's going on with the Apostle Paul's life, let's think about the church. I already mentioned to you that this place was incredibly sexually promiscuous. And guess what? Many of those folks had lives that were radically changed. You can read about that in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Radically changed radically changed but but what was going on in Corinth is that no should be no surprise to us this church was made up of people that wanted to change the world this church was made up of people who were uber driven who were super smart who moved there to that place because they wanted to do something. And God radically changed their lives, but yet they still had, you know, all that stuff underneath the surface going on. And so they, this church, those who made up the church in Corinth, really prioritized gifts. Matter of fact, if you read through the New Testament, you will find this church was the most gifted church that we have. They had more gifts than any other church in the New Testament. Here's the problem. They thought gifts were most important. And and even though Corinth may be far ahead of us sexually, uh, in our country, and particularly in the church, we line up right with where Corinth was in prioritizing gifts. We have a tendency to think that gifts are far more important than the gospel. We have a tendency to build things around gifts, to think that if we just have a strong, gifted leader, everything will work, everything will go great, we'll get the results that we want. We bank on gifts, even to the point where we minimize Jesus, minimize the gospel, and minimize what Paul's getting at here, love. We do the exact same thing. We all have a tendency to think that gifts are far more important than they actually are. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13. So that's getting our bearings. So then let's think about, continue to think about being challenged and being crushed. And let's go to this. So in thinking about being challenged and being crushed, after we've gone through getting our bearings, let's go to this. Gifts don't always indicate that there is a genuine relationship with Jesus. I'll say it a different way. Gifts don't always indicate that a heart has been attached to Jesus. I'll say it this way. Gifts don't always mean conversion. That's what Paul's trying to communicate here. 
I mean, read the first three verses and, and think about this. Just let me hit the highlights of what he says. He talks about tongues in verse 1. And then he talks about prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and, and having all knowledge. And if I have faith so that I can remove mountains, if I give away all that I have, this is how dedicated I am. I'm going to give away all that I have. I'm even willing to die. My body could be burned up. That's how committed I am. I even give to the poor. Paul is mentioning all of these gifts. Let me ask you this. Who do you think he's talking about? Who do you think he's talking about? Why in the world would he mention all of these things in the first three verses? Why would he do that? Who is he talking about? It's not as though Paul was being interviewed for a 60-minute segment. And, and he's being interviewed, and they're asking him, hey, Paul, why don't you tell us about this Christian view of love? And Paul's like, oh, we'll just in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not as though he's writing us this chapter so we can read this chapter and think to ourselves, oh, well, here's another checklist, and i got to see if I measure up. This is, how I'm supposed to, this is what I'm supposed to think about love and whether I, I live this out or not. He's not writing a checklist. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the makeup of the Corinthian church. He's saying, you all think that gifts are everything. You all are trying to explore them to the nth degree. And guess what? They mean, look at verse 5, nothing. He says in verse 1, if you, if you can do all this and, and understand mysteries and, and tongues, and if you don't have love, it's just a meaningless noise. You look at the end of verse 3, he says, this gets you nowhere with God. We have all these things, but not love. We're pursuing gifts, and we're not thinking about love. It means nothing. And let me tell you, the apostle Paul is lining up right behind Jesus here, right behind Jesus. The apostle Paul is saying the exact same thing as Jesus you see, on one hand, on one hand, let me tell you how explicitly Paul, what, let me tell you how explicitly Paul means what he's saying. Do you remember the teaching of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7 kind of thing? Do you remember that Jesus says that there will come a time in which people will come to him and say, Jesus, didn't we prophesy in your name? We healed people in your name. We did all this in your name. And you know what Jesus says? Depart from me, I never knew you. Take that in. These are people who are gifted. These are people who are interested in gifts. These are people who are trying to stir up these gifts. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that time's going to come. And I'm going to say, I never knew you. Gifts do not necessarily mean conversion. Gifts do not necessarily mean that your heart is attached to Jesus. Sometimes God gives gifts to those who do not belong to him. Gifts are not most important. They don't even really matter. On the other hand, not only is, Jesus, is Paul lining right up behind Jesus, 
On the other hand, he's pressing in on us here, and maybe if nothing else has challenged you yet, or nothing has crushed you yet, this might, this might have a chance to do that. It does me. On the other hand, Paul is saying, sometimes you might want to use those gifts for yourself. There's a guy that tells a story he lived a long time ago named Charles Spurgeon. And he tells the story of a gardener, a king, and a nobleman. And this is how the story goes. At the end of the year, the gardener picked out his biggest carrot. And he took it to the king and he said, King, this I've been gardening my whole life. This is the biggest carrot I've ever grown. And I want to give it to you because you are a great king. Take this carrot as an expression of my love. Thank you for being king. And then he turns to leave. And before he leaves, the king says to him, hey, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know where your garden is. I know your land. I own the land right beside your land. I want to give you that other land so that you can expand your garden and grow more. And of course, the gardener was overwhelmed, right? He was just going to thank the king, giving him the biggest carrot he'd ever grown. The nobleman heard all of this and thought to himself, wow, king gave him some land? So a few days later, he brought a horse into the king and said, king, I raise and breed horses on the side, and this is the biggest, strongest, fastest horse I've ever grown, and I want to give it to you. Take it, because you are a great king. And the king looked at the nobleman, and he said, the gardener gave me the carrot. You, my friend, have given yourself the horse. You get the point? How many times do we use our gifts, pursue gifts, think gifts are so important, only to serve self? Paul is saying, Paul is, rebu Paul is rebuking this church. He is rebuking them. Because all they care about are gifts. All they want are more gifts. All they want to do is pursue gifts. And they want to use those gifts for themselves. And Paul is saying this is so serious that they potentially mean nothing. Now I realize that I just said that this chapter is rebuking, right? That Paul's rebuking these, these folks, this church. And I want you to know, I just mean this as a quick sidebar. Um, you know, I get asked to read 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings, you know. And some of us may have, you know, like little pillows that grandmother crocheted and put together in 1 Corinthians 13, and, and all that's great. And, and I've read it at some of your weddings, and I will still continue to do it. I think it's a beautiful chapter. I just want you to know. 1 Corinthians 13 is fundamentally a rebuke, a challenge. I'll still read at your wedding. I think it's fine to use it at weddings. I'm just trying to say don't lose the message of what 1 Corinthians 13 is actually about because we've taken out of context and used it in a way that we want to, okay? And I'll still read at your wedding. I love to read scripture. It's a beautiful chapter. I'm just saying don't let how we often use it or how we so many times have heard it take away the actual meaning of what it's supposed to communicate. We don't want to get this wrong. I'll still read at your wedding. We clear on that? All right, sidebar closed up. All right, so 
Paul is saying that gifts don't necessarily mean your heart is attached to Jesus. And he's lining up with Jesus, and he's telling us and challenging us by saying, how many times do you use your gifts to serve yourself? Then you look at verse 4 through 6, and he's just pressing the sin further. Look at these verses, and I'm going to cover these quickly. Love is patient, kind, does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. That's love. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Love is not resentful. It, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Paul is pressing further on the church. He's not just talking about who they are and what they prioritize and how gifted they are and how important they think gifts are. He's pressing even further. Real quick, if you look at this list in four through six, what Paul is actually doing is he takes two ideas and then he flushes out the details of what those two ideas are. Let me make sense of that. Living in Eastern North Carolina, something that's really important to Eastern North Carolina is barbecue. Am I right? Vinegar-based barbecue. That is the idea, one general idea. Now, there are lots of applications of that. Are you a Moore's barbecue person? Do you like Parker's? Well, if you like Parker's, which one do you like? Do you like the new one on Arlington? Do you like the old ones? Are you a Sam Jones? Are you third-generation Sam Jones? Like, you got the idea of barbecue, vinegar-based barbecue, and then you got the details of what that looks like, right? You got bees. Anybody like bees? I love bees. What Paul is saying is he's giving two big ideas. The first one is at the end of verse 4, where he says, not arrogant, which means he's talking about pride. And then the other one is after the phrase rude, the one that says love doesn't seek its own, you know? Those are the two ideas that Paul's talking about. Let me try to make sense of this real quick. When he says love is not arrogant, he actually is using the same word that he used in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Where he says, knowledge puffs up. It's the same idea. And then when it says, seeks not his own, seeks not its own, it's the same word, the same concept that he used at the end of 1 Corinthians 10. Do you see? He is coming right at them. He is challenging them. He is crushing them. He's crushing us. He's challenging us. He's saying, I've already said that you're proud. I've already said that you seek your own. And here's how you've been doing it. You haven't been patient. You haven't been kind. You've been keeping a record of wrongs. You've been seeking your own things. You've been irritable. On and on and on. He's, he is putting them together saying, this is how you have been living. And then when you look at verse 7, you get all of everything, right? Love uh, uh, bears all things. Uh, hopes all things. Endures all things. Believes all things. As if to say, love is the only thing that's going to last. Everything else is temporary. Everything. Your gifts are temporary. The gifts that you're trying to seek are temporary. They may not even matter, but they are going to pass away. Focus on love. Because love is active, always active. And love will never fade away. He even says, love endures forever. And then he illustrates all this with his own little illustration in verse 11. And it's an idea he's been talking with them about over and over throughout the letter. 
Look at verse 11. He illustrates all this by saying, when I was a child, I used to think like a child. I used to act like a child. Do you see that? Verse 11. He's been telling them throughout his letter that they are very immature. They think that they're super mature because they love gifts. They think they're super important because they want to enhance those gifts. They think that they can build a whole church on gifts. And Paul is saying, don't be like a child. Stop thinking like a child. Now that means that we got to think about what it means to be a child for a minute, right? Maybe we can remember these things too. Maybe we can notice how much we're still the same way. I love children. I hope you know that already. I love children. And what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to like, this is just a description, okay, that maybe all of us can resonate with. Here are a, couple th- here are a few things about children that might also describe us, me, at 45. Children are impatient. Sound familiar, mom, dad? Have impatient children ever? Children don't like to delay gratification, right? I want it, want it now. And children oftentimes don't have perspective, right? They don't see the bigger picture. They don't understand the connection, how everything's connected. They don't don't understand what these things could necessarily mean here and there and wherever, right? But how much are we still the same way? Which what we want, we want it now. We don't have patience to wait on something to see what's going to happen. We want to act and with our giftedness make it happen, right? We lose perspective, and so we, we, we lose our temper, perhaps, at times, because we don't have perspective. Paul is saying to us, don't be immature. Don't live your life trying to seek gifts and build things around your gifts, because they're not going to last. But love, love, love. Well, perhaps somewhere in there you were challenged or maybe even crushed. I don't know. Just guessing. But this chapter is also telling us about how we have to change. And I know this. This is true for all of us. There's not a single one of us who will ever change in any, in any real, genuine way apart from this. If you look at verse 10 and verse 12, you'll see these things put together. You'll see how Paul describes how we're all going to change and how we should change, and how we should want to change. In other words, when you hear all this talk about gifting, or you hear this description of love, it's not, Paul's not saying, you know what, you just need to want this more. You just need to work harder at this. Although we probably need to work harder at being patient and kind and bearing things, right? This is what he says about change. If you look at verse 10, last part of verse 9 into, part, into, into verse 10, Now we know in part, but when the perfect comes. Do you see that? How are you going to change? Well, let me tell you. Here's here's one thing that has to happen. You have to know that perfection is coming. Come back to that in a minute. Then it goes on to say, now we see through a glass dimly or darkly, but then we shall see face to face. See that? So if you're going to change, you have to know that perfection is coming and you have to know a face-to-face life is coming. And then the last part is this. For now we know in part, but then, then we shall know as we have been known. 
You want to know how to change? You got to remember perfection's coming. And that idea that Paul communicates with perfection is this concept of, you know, the telos of something. That's the word that he's used there to describe perfection. You see, the telos is when we actually are living out the intention for why we were made. God built us to function in a certain way, and when we are when we are uh, living that out, when we are living how God uh, made us, that's when we come to the telos. That's when we come to perfection. That is how we know that we can change now. Because God has made us to live a certain way. And the time is coming in which, in the future, we actually will be able to be all that we were created to be. And that will happen because we will see God face to face. And when we see him face to face, we will know, meaning we will be enhanced in our understanding of the gospel, particularly the love of God. We will finally know it in brand new ways as we have been, past tense, known. In other words, God has always known everything about us. He's always known everything about us, our strengths, our weaknesses. He knows when we try to lean on our gifts. He knows it all. But the time is coming when his prior knowledge of who we are and his prior love of who we are will ultimately change so that we will love like we've been created to love because we'll see him face to face and perfection will be here. Now that'll change you. Because God loves you far more than you can ever imagine. He loves you knowing the worst about you. My hunch is many of you have friends who you would consider some of your closest friends who probably don't know the worst about you. Not everything. Just a guess. Maybe not for all of you. But my guess is there are people in your life that you would consider awfully close to you. But you haven't even told some of the dark things about your life. Because you're afraid they won't care about you anymore. God knows it all, and he still loves you, and he has loved you in Jesus. Now, I know you might be sitting there thinking, well, what in the world does this have to do with Revelation? So, let's cover this quickly. So, this is intro sermon number three, and here's the point that I, that I want to make that we need to understand, and I'll, here it is. You can see it in verse 9 and in verse 10. There are things we know and things we don't know. Paul's just said it, full on. There are things we know and things we don't know. If you've been through some of our Sunday school classes, you know we have the line diagram. If you haven't been, then that's fine. Hang in there just for a moment. The line diagram, there are things above the line and things below the line. Things that are above the line are things that are God's, that are beyond us, that are according to his secrets that we will never know. And there are things below the line that he's revealed, like the scriptures and things that we can know. And we are fully human when we are functioning as if there are things above the line that we can't know. And there are things below the line that we need to know. And Paul is saying, there are some things we know and some things we don't know. And that means when we come to the book of Revelation, we need to realize and live out the fact that there are some things we know and there's a whole lot we don't know. And we just let that go. Just let it go. 
Remember the first introduction, the first introductory sermon was this. It was about trajectory, remember? If we're going to understand Revelation, we need to start Genesis 1 and 2 with trajectory. God always finishes what he starts, right? Remember this? So, Revelation is the outworking of Genesis. The Bible is one big story. So, as God created us, and after he created, he rested. That's his plan. We are going to fulfill the way that he has created us to be. We are going to live that out. He told us to have dominion and to multiply and to spread his glory. And beloved, we will. You cannot stop that. No evil can stop that. That is where we are headed. That is the point of revelation. God always finishes what he starts. Secondly, if we're going to understand Revelation, we have got to understand how God views time. And the last day started in the first century. So we looked at last week. That means that Revelation doesn't start to tell us about the end times and the last days. Revelation does not start to tell us about the last days and then work it out chronologically. And you can determine where we are in that system by figuring out current events and which ones, you're appro- which ones we are interpreting appropriately. And then we understand Revelation. That is not it at all. Revelation is not giving us the start of end times. Revelation is summarizing all of the end times from the first century until the return of Christ. However long that is, that book is summarizing everything that will happen before Christ returns. Third, we're looking at today, some things we know and some things we don't. That means that Revelation is not a code book, that we just need to be super gifted and look at super gifted people who've been given all this profound insight that they can crack the code so that they can really interpret what Revelation is talking about. Revelation is not for people who have gifts. Revelation is where we get to hang on. There are things that we know and things that we don't know. This chapter is about love conquers. Revelation is about the fact that the love of Jesus conquers all. There's no sin, there's no evil, there's no death that can withstand the love of Jesus. His love conquers all. That brings me to this. Do you see what 1 Corinthians 13 is really about? I really think that this is one of the most brilliant chapters in all of Scripture. Certainly, in my opinion anyway, I need to be careful about this, in my opinion, This is one of Paul's most brilliant chapters because he is simultaneously rebuking the church and communicating who this love is actually describing. You get it? When you read back through 1 Corinthians 13 and you start reading things like, 
people that have power and giftedness and can move mountains and can deliver up their body and, and, and patient and kind and, and doesn't envy or boast and isn't arrogant or rude, doesn't insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. A love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus. Do you, get, do you get it? Paul is saying, don't you understand the love of God for you? This is the love that we have to live out, the love that is impossible, the love that only makes sense as we understand Jesus. Jesus. He is the only one that has embodied all of this. The gospel is what illustrates this love, the love of Christ. And that's good news for people like us, isn't it? Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, help us to know more about your love for us. Help us to think about the manner in which you have loved us. You didn't spare your own son so that you might give us freely everything. Help us to look forward to the day when you return, Lord Jesus, when the perfection comes. Help us to look forward to that. And because of that hope, and because of seeing you face to face, and because of knowing then, because of knowing then, that we will find out how much you have loved us, how thoroughly you have loved us. Because of all of that, help us to change and to be more like you today, tomorrow, and forever. Amen. Beloved, if you would stand, love for you to receive God's blessing. Love for you to know God's blessing. I love for you to live as if you actually believe this blessing is true for you this week, no matter what you will experience, what's on your calendar, or what isn't. God is going to do things in your life through whatever happens to make you more like Christ. So hear this. The Lord your God is a mighty God. He is in your midst and he will save you. This week he will rejoice over you and he also will probably quiet you with his love. And in the age to come forever, for eternity, he will exult over you with loud singing because our Christ is alive and he's great. Amen. Go in his peace.